The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Dr. Catherine Pettick, a Senior Associate Geotechnical Engineer at Shannon and Wilson Incorporated in Seattle, with nearly 20 years of experience in design, construction, and research. And today we'll be talking mostly about large diameter foundations. I'm your host, Jared Green, and this is the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. Before we get started here, this is a free show, and our sponsors help us to keep it free. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for today, Menard USA. Menard USA is a specialty ground improvement contractor that works nationally, providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites of problematic soils. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for your help on your next project, please visit www.menardgroupusa.com. That's www.menardgroupusa.com. With that, let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Podcast. Hello, Jared. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, and you? Doing well. Well, Catherine, I'm glad that you were able to come on the show. We gave uh, an introduction to our listeners, but in your own words, can you tell us a little bit more about your background as an engineer and also what is it that you do at Shannon & Wilson? I'm a geotechnical engineer at Shannon & Wilson in Seattle. You know, we're a full-service geotechnical and geoenvironmental engineering firm. I'm a Seattle native. Growing up as a kid, I was good in school and I liked math and science. My parents certainly encouraged me in those directions. I went to the University of Michigan to the College of Engineering as an undergrad. Honestly, I got there though and I hated it. Hate's a strong word. You hated it? Well, I really disliked it, I would say. You know, and I had these friends who, you know, they're studying art and history and reading great books and debating politics and philosophy. And it just seemed like so much more fun than thermodynamics and mechanics of materials. And for a long time, I felt really uninspired in engineering school. I made my way to civil engineering and thought I would focus on structural engineering. Um, But then I took my first geotechnical engineering class, and I would say that my whole world changed. That was really exciting to me. You know, I liked the geology aspects of it, working with natural materials. I loved that every problem is unique. The site conditions are always unique, and There wasn't necessarily a single right answer that problems could be approached from different directions, but there's always different factors to consider and different solutions to problems. 
from there, I had my first geotechnical engineering internship, actually at Shannon and Wilson, the firm I'm at now. And I spent a big part of that summer watching drilled shafts go in. This was These were four-foot diameter drilled shafts back in 1999. We used to think those were big. And, you know, I was really excited about it from then on. And I went and got my master's degree at the University of Washington. And after that, I took a fellowship abroad at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And there did some interesting work for a year on the topic of train-induced ground vibrations. It was a total departure from everything I'd done so far. But, you know, it was a really remarkable experience. And and while I was there, I had amazing opportunity of attending the Nobel Prize dinner. The Nobel Prize is given out every year in Sweden. They have a lottery for all of the students in Sweden to win one of the lucky seats at the table. And I had a colleague who was a fellow American on the same fellowship I was, and she had thrown her name in the hat. And amazingly, she won. And she didn't know many people in Sweden at the time, and neither did I. And she invited me to be her date to this dinner and ball and gala. It was the 100th anniversary of the Nobel Prize at the time. And so they invited back all the living former Nobel laureates for this event. And here we are at this dinner and ball, and we're two single young women who just attached to each other there. And and all of these, you know, former Nobel Prize winners and some members of their teams and people from these various academies, and they're all men. And here we were. Um, And so I danced the night away, never having been to a ball before with these brilliant people. And the party went on to like five in the morning. And I remember the last hours talking with the guy who got the prize in economics a few years earlier. And it was the most inspiring night of my life. The next day, I got an email from my master's advisor. And he said, Catherine, we got funding to continue your master's research. You want to come back for a PhD? And after all that, I mean, it was impeccable timing. I said, yes, sign me up, please. So I went on then and I went back to the University of Washington and got my doctorate. You know, the project evolved somewhat, but it was on the topic of numerical modeling of deep foundations. We created a new three-dimensional interface element for soil structure interaction problems. And I think that research... It was actually really defining of my career and practice in that it had this hugely numerical element to it. And then we had an implementation of it. And then we used it in some practical applications. And so I I think that that's me. It's like, um, you know, there's some advanced analytics in there, but certainly grounded in bringing it back to practical problems and solutions. Completed my graduate work in 2006 and then came on here to Shannon and Wilson full time after that. Since I've been at Shannon and Wilson, you know, I've just had tremendous opportunities and have worked on a great number of projects from landslides to big retaining wall projects to a lot of transportation infrastructure. I've developed some specialization in deep foundations where I've had the opportunity to work on some great projects where we've done 
extensive load test programs on large diameter, drilled shafts and driven piles, base grouting. Here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we have significant seismic hazards. So a lot of soil structure interaction, liquefaction and lateral spreading hazards, all of that tying into our foundation recommendations. So lots of cool things. You can see that timing is everything. Yeah. To go from being uninspired to being inspired to going all the way to that PhD, that's incredible. Thank you. There's been a lot of fun along the way, for sure. What would you say to the student that's listening and they're uninspired right now and they're in an engineering curriculum? How do you turn it on? Because I can't tell if you turned it on or it just turned on, but what, what would you say to that student? Everybody, what inspires them is different. For me, I think I feared that my engineering career would just be, you know, stuck behind a computer and behind a calculator. And I like more than that. And really, I think our careers are, you know, we do, you know, project management, there's marketing and proposal writing. Communication is such a huge part of what we do, articulating our recommendations. I spend a lot of time writing, whether it's writing up, you know, for proposals or recommendations. And all of those things, you know, really play into the other sides that, you know, are a little bit softer than all of the analytical things we do. And I have a big brain. I like doing technical stuff, but I really like the other things too. And I think that it's much more interactive and incredibly more creative than I assumed it was when I was doing statics problems as an engineering student. There's certainly opportunities to build on one's strengths and to make it what fits to you, right? I mean, this is still engineering. There's people who focus only on calculations and there's people who step way farther beyond than that. And I think that there's a lot more opportunities there than we may see. Let's say when you were senior in college, did you ever think that you'd go on to get a PhD one day? No, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, opportunities presented themselves and it was a lot of fun and really an interesting time and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, what does a typical workday look like for you, Dr. Petick? We do many things. In my role now, you know, I started at Shannon Wilson as a staff engineer, you know, moved my way up to kind of mid-level. And now I'm a senior associate at Shannon and Wilson. And so this means I certainly lead projects and there's interacting with clients, trying to work through issues, you know, and then, you know, things like scoping and budgeting and project tracking of budgets and time management where we're at. And there's overseeing staff. That includes executing the work, developing staff, and helping them to grow. In my firm, I have, you know, recognized skills and deep foundations. And so, you know, I regularly field calls saying, Catherine, what do you think about this problem? Or can you lend some support on this project to provide some oversight? And those are really fun jobs to kind of step in and then step back out again. Project management, marketing, you know, that's a big, you know, we're always looking for the next project. And so keeping an eye out, talking to people, working on proposals and executing the work. I've also involved in some national committees, 
technical committees related to deep foundations. And so some committee work there, participating and attending conferences. There's a huge gamut. Every day is different. There's always new things. During your internship, you hinted that four foot diameter was considered large at that time. <laughs> what is a large diameter shaft? When you're thinking large diameter, what is a large diameter shaft these days? Large is relative. I've got some really interesting projects going on right now. I've got two projects ongoing right now with 12 foot diameter shafts. I would say that those are pretty large. You know, it used to be six and eight foot was large and now large is pushing, you know, the 10 and 12 foot diameter range um, and shafts, driven piles. You know, I read, led this research project for Federal Highway Administration related with large diameter open-end piles for those. And I think large is generally anything greater than 30 or 36 inches. And there's a whole different set of what's going on there. I also have another project of closed-end piles where right now we just have a project where we've been driving 36-inch diameter closed-end piles. And frankly, I'd never heard of anybody driving anything larger than 24-inch closed-end. We see things are getting bigger, loads are getting bigger, we have more demands and upsizing all around in foundation sizes. What kind of wall thickness are you looking at for a 36 diameter close-ended driven? That's got to be a pretty robust section. Uh, now, Jared, you're going to push me on this. I think they were one-inch walls. It may be three-quarter inch. They were driven 120 to 140 feet deep. And so there was certainly some interesting challenges there. You know, we, they're going in fine grain deposits, you know, kind of somewhere in the range of 20 to 40 blow count material. In other solutions, we weren't getting really enough resistance. The closed end piles tie in to form a, like a soldier pile abutment wall. But, you know, with getting these to tip, we had a lot of uncertainty, you know, with how can we get them down? How big of a pile will it require? Can we really get the capacity that we needed? So we spent, you know, a lot of time on the weep analysis and the contractor came out with a smaller hammer than we recommended and they got them in the ground and the dynamic testing proved out nearly perfectly. And so it was quite a success and a really interesting application for us. Well, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about FHWA research projects. So I understand you are the principal investigator there. And these are large diameter open-ended pipe piles or piles, I should say. But you tell us a little bit more about the research and the outcome and how it all went. Large diameter open-end piles. So as I said earlier, these are piles, you know, in our project, we define them as anything greater than 30 inch diameter. They're increasingly being used in transportation infrastructure projects. Of interest, they have high load carrying capacity. They can sustain high lateral loads, you know, significant flexural resistance. But, you know, in seismic areas like this, they can still have some flexibility. They can have a substantial unsupported length, you know, when you've got scour conditions, marine conditions, or significant liquefaction. However, um, there's significant uncertainty associated with large diameter open end piles. There's a lot of existing piles out there and a lot of existing static design methods. And the majority of those static design methods, you know, were developed quite a while ago on 
there was a lot of load testing done, it seems like in the 70s and 80s, all on smaller diameter foundations. And foundations have continued to increase in size, but it seems like there was a period when load testing stopped. And so these old design methods didn't really, you know, have questionable applicability to larger diameter foundations. Some, for example, like the Nordland method for piles is known to over-predict the pile resistance and is therefore, you know, really not preferred to use. A lot of the existing static design methods just don't address pile plugging. An open-end pile, right, we have resistance acting on the pile exterior, and at the base, a plug can form. And if so, you've got end bearing acting over that full end area, or, you know, the pile may just core through the soil. And in that case, you would have base resistance just acting on the steel annulus and potentially side friction acting on the pile interior. The magnitude of that side resistance on the pile interior is, in some projects, it's been known to be very small. And in other cases, it's been more significant. This whole like fundamental nature of open-end piles is really not very well understood and certainly not captured in the design guidance. Shannon Wilson, my firm, and I, you know, we had a lot of experience using large diameter open-end piles prior to this RFP coming out. We'd driven some of the, you know, for the E.B. Slough Bridge here in Washington. You know, at the time, it was the largest diameter piles. There were six-footers that the state had ever driven. We supplemented that by an extensive um, dynamic test program up on another project, the Portman Bridge. It was a cable stay bridge with the north and south pylons supported on these huge pile groups. I think they were groups of 49 and 63 piles, all six foot diameter at the north and south pylons. I mean, these are huge, huge gaps. And so we did, you know, this big load test program and tested a six foot diameter pile to over 12,000 kips and moved it almost six inches. Really cool stuff that we had seen, you know, and been a part of with large diameter open end pilots and had really understood, you know, where some of this uncertainty is. And for the research, we teamed with Dr. Mike McVeigh at the University of Florida and his group because large diameter open end piles it encompasses not only the steel piles, but concrete cylinder piles as well, um, where he had a lot of experience and then also experience in resistance factor calibration. With the research, we collected a huge mass of existing load test data and built a load test database. I think we collected over 160 load tests on large diameter piles, um, store, created this database to house them. And with that, you know, FHWA had a previous deep foundation load test database, and we extracted all that data and populated it into our new database. And, you know, for all the listeners, that database is out there um, and available for free download. You can find it just by Googling FHWA Deep Foundation Database, Load Test Database, and it should get you there. We collected this data, built the database, and then we used the data to evaluate existing static design methods. And with the research and the data that was collected, we really weren't able to look at the fundamental mechanisms of piles plugging or not. It would take, you know, an infinite amount of load test data in all kinds of sizes and all kinds of conditions, I think, to really understand that. And so our goal was to bracket the problem and develop 
usable guidance for design of large diameter open end piles. So with this, we evaluated existing design methods, tried them in different combinations, looked at which methods were more and less effective, and then developed resistance factors for that are specific to large diameter piles. I know we wrote all the research um, that's summarized in FHWA research report. And since that time, we've been working to get the recommendations implemented into the ASHDO code. So then they can be used in design. It's really been a tremendous experience. And I think as a practitioner, it's really a cool opportunity to get to build on one's experience and apply it to research on something that, you know, is something that you use in your practice and, you know, to really help to get to shape the practice. So, yeah, it was a really cool opportunity. And I think that any time that you have practitioners working alongside the research in the agency side, when they're all working together, you're going to end up with something that we're using, which is pretty exciting. Yep. And something that, yeah, is usable. When we talk about large diameter open-ended piles, are you seeing that like just select areas in the world or select areas in the country are using this system or you kind of see it everywhere? That's a good question. For a long time, large diameter open-end piles were, well, they have been used in the offshore industry for several decades. And that I think is where their use was concentrated up until the last 15 or 20 years. And since that time, we've been seeing them used more in transportation infrastructure projects. We're using them here in the Pacific Northwest. There's been numerous projects in California. Caltrans has actually done a lot of load testing on their large diameter open-end piles. There's several projects, you know, from, you know, this load test data collection effort We had load tests around the country that we input into that database and from around the world. And so I think, yeah, we see them being used everywhere where the need arises. Largest diameter pile job you've worked on? You don't have to say the job, but largest diameter? For the piles, me personally is just the six foot on large diameter piles. My firm, we currently have a project with seven footers that, you know, I've just been hearing the exciting parts of, yeah. On the periphery. (laughs) Shafts, we're certainly seeing bigger diameters than that. As I mentioned, you know, 12-foot diameters, I think, are increasingly in conversation. Whenever you start to think about, for me personally, whenever you start thinking about these diameters, you start to automatically think about the machine that has to install it. Like, everything gets scaled up, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's nonlinear. Awesome. Well, before we take our break, advice that you would give listeners that want to pursue a similar career to yours. Again, you're a practitioner with a PhD. You're doing some really cool things. Advice? I have really loved being at my firm, Shannon and Wilson, because of the incredible like breadth and depth of technical expertise that we have and this huge array of projects and project types that we work on. Engineering is a very experience-based field. With each project that we work on, we learn something new. And it's like another tool in a toolbox with every project we work on. And so I think having the opportunity to work on a wide variety of projects, it helps put more tools in our toolbox and 
being able to have some kind of specialization and go deep on things, you know, it's sharpening those tools. There's that. And then, and then the colleagues, you know, having great colleagues to seek out for input or advice or troubleshooting, you know, it's like being able to dip into their toolboxes too. Would really say for people at the start of their careers or, you know, anywhere you're at to really seek out projects and people and opportunities to help you grow, to continue learning and discover new things. I think that's so much about what it's about. It helps to make us better engineers and leads to better outcomes overall. So we're going to pause right here. I'm going to come back in just a moment and close this one out with Dr. Catherine Pettick and our Career Factor Safety End segment. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It's time for our Career Factor of Safety End segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But one could ask, what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Dr. Catherine Pettick. Catherine, you've had a very successful career. And when you look back at your career, what's one thing you implemented to give yourself, let's say, a factor of safety in your career? Factor of safety. So this means something that gives you excess capacity to meet the demands. One of the really key things for me has been about building relationships. It probably goes for life in general, that I really think relationships are you know, one of the fundamental keys to success. And I see this in building relationships with my superiors. It's great to be able to go be able to talk to the boss and say, you know, I've got this issue and I could use some support or here, I've got this idea. What do you think? People who have been mentors and leaders to for guidance and those who have helped me with opportunities along the way. There's relationships with my peers that it's good to have friends at work. It's good to have colleagues who you can call up and ask a stupid question and not feel stupid or just be able to brainstorm together or share successes or disappointments. And relationships with, you know, younger staff that There's a really critical transfer of knowledge, I think, that's going on. I think that we learn a lot in mentoring relationships, both being a mentee and being a mentor. And and frankly, I really love the perspective that young people provide that not even that old and yet, (laughs) and yet there's something different, right? That's really exciting. And I think also, you know, with clients. It's all about relationship building that, you know, with stronger relationships, we can collaborate more and better. Having good relationships helps us with securing more work or continuing together or looking down the road. I guess also competitors. There's a lot we can learn from each other, you know, when we're paying attention. And there's even opportunities where with competitors, we can collaborate and build on each other's strengths. Relationships are extremely important and have helped me so much in my career. And I think really helped to build in that extra capacity to meet the demands. I appreciate you coming on and sharing all the insights you did with us. And you share great information and advice that I know is going to help our listeners. Uh, for listeners listening and saying, man, how can I reach out to her? 
What's the best way for people to find you? You want to share your email or if you're on social media? Probably easiest is at my email. You know, I'm not that old. I said that, but I'm really bad at social media. So email me my initials, kap at shanwell.com, or I think you can also reach me at katherinepedic at shanwell.com. Thank you so much for coming on. This is great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 27, as well as any of the links, resources, websites, and books mentioned during today's episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.